Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. back again for another episode of the Dale Jr. Download. We got our guest Kurt Bush coming on the show. We also gonna talk Darlington. We're back racing with NASCAR. Everybody's excited about that. We got an Ash Jr. presented by Xfinity as well. Let's get the show started. There he is. Perfect. Hey, Kurt. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Hey, when did you get home last night? Uh, uh, 10.30. Hmm. Not too bad. You stopped on the side of the road and did some sort of video on social media at the state line. Why'd you do that? I was just driving back, and I was just sitting there, like, road tripping, old school race, you know, like, you, and yet you're all alone. Like my, my wife wasn't with me, uh, no team members. And I'm sitting there going, there's so many people that are just stuck at home. Some don't have jobs. Some, uh, you know, their lives are all turned upside down. And I'm, I'm hopeful that they tuned in for the race, you know, just to, you know, feel, uh, feel their NASCAR engines roaring again. And I'm like, you know, this, this reminds me of old school days. I just, I just want to pull over. And then also, like, to give motivation. Like, people can get out, go drive, go for a road trip. And, and go see more of the country in spots that you haven't been to before. And so, I don't know. I was just inspired. I've been driving down that road for 20 years, and I'm like, hell, I'll just so stop. You, so you did not get pulled over in McBee. That's not why you stopped, right? You did, just to clarify. <laughs> I, I go 34 <laughs> in that 35 just for that greatest period. McBee is awful. So, man, I know you guys are happy to be back competing and racing. What was – have you ever went to a race and uh, started the race without any practice or qualifying? Have you ever done anything like that before? The closest thing I've ever done was um, me and my little brother were running the KBM Monster Energy car in 2012. And when we sorted out the schedule, he says, hey, you got the short straw already. I'm like, what? He goes, when the Cup Series is in Sonoma, you're going to have to go run Road America in Wisconsin. And I'm like – Okay, sure. I go, how are we going to do practice and all that? And I can't remember who, who shook down the car for us, but he goes, no, nah, man, you just got to show up, qualify and race. He goes, just, just keep the fenders on it. You'll get a top 10. And I'm like, great. This is my brother, car owner. I got to fly all the way there and then fly all the way back. That was when I was racing for James Finch. But I just showed up at Road America. I'd been on the track years and years and years ago. Uh, with Jimmy Fenning, my crew chief at Roush, I said, hey, man, I, I like this Road America track. I think we can go test some brakes up there. So we were doing a brake test, and uh, the one of the sensors got left off the brakes uh, for, like, the pedal pressure. And so I rolled down into turn five. I hit the brake pedal. No pedal. And I'm, like, panic. Like, I just yanked the wheel. I started bouncing off this jersey rail, bouncing off that jersey rail, and I'm spinning all around, just wrecking into everything. And at one point, I'm like, Poof, and everything's in slow-mo. I'm like, <laughs> oh, there's the ambulance. Cool. I, I don't have to go far when, when I stop wrecking. I get out of the car, right? And I look back in the ambulance. It's The whole left front of it is wiped out. It's looking like this. <laughs> so even if somebody was hurt, Nobody was going anywhere in the ambulance because it got wiped out. I mean, it was a huge wreck. You hit the ambulance. I, I hit the ambulance. <laughs> you always hear that when people say, like, like you wrecked everything, including the ambulance or the pace car or something. I've never actually heard it literally happen, though. Yeah. I, I mean, I just the brake pedal went flat. I'm doing 170. This is my warm-up lap. 
and wiped out the ambulance. So, and yeah, that's, that's my Road America, like, initiation. And then when I went there for the Xfinity race, kind of zoning back into yesterday's race, I just went like, hey, I, I should be able to go out here, qualify, uh, just get, get used to the track a little bit, and then just find a rhythm watching others. And I think I qualified 17th and raced our way up to seventh at the end of the day and then flew back to, to race Sonoma. And <laughs> that, that feeling of just steady, get up to speed, checklist on the first set of tires, checklist the track, and, and then just go from there, uh, that's, that's kind of what I did yesterday at Darlington. And that, that was the experience that I, that I relied on. Lap 10, were you hanging on? You know, everybody did good on the first uh, restart, uh, other than Stenhouse. I mean, we, did we expect that? I don't know. <laughs> but everybody gave a lot of room, and I don't think I went hard until, like, my third set of tires. But I got maybe lucky because I started 22nd. You know, like Keselowski and all those boys up front, man, they had to barrel it down in there. They had more responsibility on them, I think. So was there kind of an agreement though? Like, did you guys have conversations? Like, I mean, this would have been a little anxious for me if I'm not been on the track at all. And you, you guys have been off for a couple months. So like, do you have conversations with other people, especially when you see who you're starting around or is it just kind of a, you know, an understanding about like, okay, this guy's going to be sensible when I go into turn one, I know he's not going to be an idiot. Was there anything yeah, like that? No, nah, no real communication. I think we all knew the, the issues at hand and the responsibility and just yeah, everybody knows how to try to protect their car. So I think it all went as smooth as it could have. And then each restart and each portion of the race ramped up afterwards. But, yeah. you know, walking out to pit road, carrying my driver bag, you know, it felt like an old school, Hey, I'm showing up to drive somebody's late model. And, <laughs> you know, then the masks, everybody was wearing masks and you couldn't like, like have that, that feeling of, of personal conversation with you. You only can just see eyes. And it was even hard to recognize certain crew members and people at track. So um, I noticed at the start of the race, you you know, you started back in 22nd. And then it was like a light switch. You're up in the top five. Um, but I'm sure for you, there's a little more to it. How did you, how was your car handling? Like you fire off in a, in, you know, on that first run. Were you pleased with the way your car drove? Were you a little, you know, were there some problems that you needed to fix? And then how, how did you guys, uh, or was it, was it as competitive as it finished the race? Cause you finished the race extremely competitive. So how did that, how did that process go from start to finish? I was surprised how tight we were to start, but also we're going in there conservative. You know, there's probably an extra percent of cross weight. Uh, the Packers, they wanted to be conservative on the front splitter because the track was so green that the pace could have been so fast at the beginning that we would have sawed off a lot of the splitter and the shape. And so I was really tight the first two runs. We were pulling Packer on those pit stops, taking a bunch of wedge out. And uh, the car started to react a little better. And then, I don't know, man, it was like a – a unicorn pit stop is what I call it. I went from like 12th to fourth <laughs> and it was game on from there. Like our car got the clean air and now I'm changing lanes, low groove, high groove, trying to find more grip and our car just reacted much better up front. And so again, our cars are 
little too aerosensitive. But overall, uh, I feel like we were just started conservative, and then we got the balance right. And then I was just like tick loose through turn two and uh, into three for the rest of the day. That's crazy. It's crazy you can be loose with such a big old spoiler on the back of the car. How do y'all get the car – how do you get the balance to be free with everything aerodynamically working against that? I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't want it that loose. <laughs> I feel like we're losing too much time, you know, hanging out on with too much yaw. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's just – I think nose weight, maybe we missed on that a little bit. You know, you still got to run full fuel at, at places like Darlington because you don't know how long that, that fuel run will go. But may, maybe we can just – tweak the balance a little bit i mean dude the rear spring split's still stupid isn't it yeah i mean it's like a two in the left rear and a 2000 2500 in the right rear it's still it's crazy so um you do got to turn around and go back to darlington and run again you know when i ran darlington i mean as much as i enjoyed racing there i really wasn't looking forward to going back so quickly so you know what's that like for you are you are you excited to go back there two days from now because that place is tough it's not an easy racetrack to run it was hot all day long i mean you got you got plenty of darlington in in out of sunday but now you have to turn around how do you get yourself psyched up to to do it all over again you know i was uh, in the zone i guess a, car, a good running car will always motivate you to to go back i mean i didn't feel like those those 400 miles were all that tough i enjoyed it and darlington's one of my favorites but here's the hot mess brewing, right? <laughs> You've been in on all these like Monday debriefs with your team, right? Yeah. And there's always that, that famous quote, all right, if we're going back there tomorrow, what would we do? Now we're in that hot mess of, oh, oh, we got to like, we're going there Wednesday and we got to make this tweak and this tweak and this tweak. And we're going to be way better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is a good point. We didn't even think about yeah. this. Right? right? It's like, oh, yeah, you know, because, you know, it's like six months from now, but you're like, oh, man, if we went back there tomorrow, let's dial it in. So we'll see. We'll see. I know what I have in my mind uh, that I want to do. I've talked to some of the team personnel this morning with bigger things. You know, it was great to have Matt Kenseth out there as, a, as an old friend and a teammate, and he had to get steering box stuff sorted out. He had to get pedal ratio sorted out because he had no practice for any of that, and then homie busts out a top 10. I mean, that, that's Matt Kenseth. That's what he does. Well, he credited you for a lot of that. Like, we had him on our show last week, and we were just trying to get his, you know, perspective coming into that because it seems, you know, quite, you know, perilous to have literally not even been with the team to have developed that chemistry. But he said, you know, listen, I talked to Kurt a lot, and conversations with you really kind of helped him, you know, get acclimated as best he possibly can in a situation that is so unique to this. Do you, I, we were curious about your, your uh, you know, your response to that. Did you find yourself talking to Matt a good bit, and how did you help him? We went on a, a couple of uh, runs with Josh Wise, who is a, a driver, guru, coach over at Canassi, and Kenseth is, uh, like, a 100% marathon runner. <laughs> and we started jogging like, okay, this is cool. I can, I can roll with this pace. And I didn't even know how far we were going. It ends up like a five-mile run, right? And halfway through, I'm like trying to guess halfway, but I can't show fatigue. But I, I kind of like, I, I, I braced up the question to Josh. I'm like, oh, we're past halfway, right? You know, because I'm starting <laughs> to feel it. <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, you know, we only got another two miles to go. I don't even know how far we ran. That feels great. Now, mentally, I know I only got 
two miles to go. And I go, hey, Matt, you pass me. So Matt's now pushing, but now he pushes Josh Wise faster with the pace. And they're, they're starting to yard me a little bit. And I have to, like, pull in some Matt Kenseth humor and, and sarcasm. And I go, hey, Matt, your calves are looking sexy these days. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody just starts laughing you know i had to break the ice like man i wasn't keeping up and yeah. it was great to see matt's fitness level as, as true as it is and and then like after we ran we're just bsing talking about this or talking about that and i go matt it's like an old shoe man you're gonna put it on you're gonna get out there and you're gonna go it's like driving somebody's late model that you you know just showed up to go drive and, and go to slinger with you know You've been to Darlington hundreds of times, so you'll you'll know that. Just get out there and go, man. Quit worrying about it. And so that, that's kind of the advice I gave them. Also, um, when I ran the Indy 500 five years ago, everybody hyped up the three-wide start going into turn one, all the dirty air, all the traffic, and and then, like, I'm all hyped up and amped up about it. Drove down into turn one, and – I'm like, well, why is everybody taking off, man? They just took off. Like, I lifted. I was too conservative. And it's like, <laughs> there's too much hype. Let's just go. Let's just drive. So that's what I told Matt to go and do. He, uh, you know, I, I feel like that that was such a great decision by Ganassi to um, to bring Matt in. Did you have any involvement or conversations before the decision to, to go after Matt? Uh, because I know you guys have been teammates in the past. I think it's a perfect fit. Uh, for what you guys need to accomplish and a great compliment to the organization and to you. Um, you're a great teammate. Matt's talked uh, about you and um, how, how much he enjoyed being your teammate in the past. And uh, I just feel like that it's, it, it, you know, considering the circumstances, it, it re it's really worked out really well. So do you, did you have any involvement or any input on the decision to bring Matt in? You know, in, in all honesty, uh, I had a list of three guys that I thought were – gonna plop right on in and then Ganassi calls me late night um I don't remember what day it was what day of the week it is just probably around nine o'clock and he's like hey I got this guy he says that uh you were the best teammate he's ever had you you want to race with him and I'm like what the hell's going on you know is this this is a catch-22 what, what's he asking me and when he said Matt Kenseth I was like holy he wants to do it Hell yeah. I said, that's that's exactly what this team needs, the, the 42 car, with the shoring up the sponsors and, and shoring up the the footing that, that is needed here, especially in this whole pandemic of where is our schedule going, what's going to happen, sponsors, uh, the, the, just everything. You know what I mean, Dale? And, and I thought it was a home run. I mean, it, it, he's like a – if you're playing blackjack, you want a face card to pop up each time you yeah. want a new hand, and he's a face card. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the people that went through your mind as Chip actually presents this that way? I mean, because he's like, you know, you used to race with him. All right, so we can weed out some people, but that's like, does Mark Martin really want to come back and do this? Or <laughs> I mean, like, that's funny. Like, there's who goes through your mind if if not Matt Kenseth? It could have been anybody, right? I felt like I was running a gossip channel with the media texting me um, on who potential drivers would be. And, and yes, Mark <laughs> Martin's name came up. I'm like, well, hell, why don't we just text Dale Jarrett? You know, 
there, yeah. there was there was Tony Stewart was in yes. the mix. Jeff Gordon. <laughs> and, and I don't know. I mean, Chip Ganassi must have just used like a, the same rocket launcher that some other people use. Like he was just shooting for the moon. Yeah. And he got one. He got Matt Kenseth. But there's good kids out there, man. There's great drivers everywhere. You know, Monster asked me, you know, who would you put in the car? And, and then there's guys like John Hunter Nemechek texting me. Hey, man, I got my arm raised up as high as possible. What can you do for me? You know, Ross Chastain, I guess his deal was he was registered with the Xfinity Championship already. And the team wanted him for that. And that's that's one of those tough mm. moments where you have a fork in the road. And, and I think Ross could do a great job, but let's let him make that decision. And so I, I could just sprinkle a little bit on top. I didn't make any of the big heavy moves. Uh, that was all Ganassi and the management. But here it is already paying dividends. I, I'm real proud of the way that we started restarted our season again at Ganassi. Absolutely. I love, Dale, what you said. During the race yesterday, uh, I think Jeff Gluck had tweeted something that said, can y'all believe Matt Kenseth is in the top 10? I mean, he hasn't raced this long. And Dale's response was, Matt happens to be a pretty talented driver, Jeff. You know, and that was it. You know, when it all said and done, that's y'all kind of just go back to the root situation. Like you said, wearing an old shoe. It's not like he forgot how to do it, right? It, exactly. I mean, but that, what that does is, is it just eases everything in this transition. It just, it proves to Matt in his mind. It proves to Chad Johnston, the crew chief. And our management at Ganassi, like we've got a car and a driver that hasn't raced in, in that long. And those two matched up to create a top 10 in their first race. So watch out. I mean, Ken's at this sneaky and he's going to be faster pretty soon. Hey, let's take a quick break from our conversation with Kurt Busch and have Dale Jr. tell us about a great partner on the download. Well, man, you know, I appreciate your insight on, on Sunday and Matt. When we decided or, or when it was uh, an opportunity to get you on the show, there's one thing that I want to ask you, and there's, there's one topic that I want to discuss with you, and that is uh, – I don't even know how to categorize it as a turnaround or a comeback, but your career has been a roller coaster. And, you know, there was a uh, – there's you know, you have changed a lot as a person, in my opinion – over the last several years. And, you know, I'm just curious as to what do you think about when you look back on your career and what was the catalyst for all, for the change? What, what's your feelings about that growth to who you are today? You know, because I would, I would, in my opinion now, it's, everybody has different perspective, but I, I, your, you, your change has been dramatic you know, your, your posture and your body language and, and just conversations with you are completely different than they were 15 years ago. And Damn, it was that bad. Well, it wasn't bad. It was, you know, <laughs> I mean, not every conversation was the uh -oh. same, but you've just really, from my point of view, made a major effort to change who you were and how, or how you approached your life and how you looked at racing and your job and making yourself happy and all those things. So I just really want to know, you know, what's, what's been your focus and, and how did you do it? How did you do it? Cause a lot of people don't turn that around. A lot of people don't, you know, when you were sent down to drive for, uh, you know, the 51 car and, and, you know, a lot of people don't make it back, you know, and you did. 
And now, not only did you make it back, you're, you know, you're successful, but your attitude has been revamped. Your, your sort of approach and, and view on life has been changed, altered, uh, which is uh, equally as impressive. So what do you have to say to that? I, I, you know, I'm trying to compliment you and it's well-deserved, but uh, what, how did you do it? I appreciate it, Dale. Thank you for, for all those kind words on, on turning things around. You know, I, I don't think there was one moment. Um, there's definitely so many different uh, things that layered up to certain moments. And then there's been so many different layers that I've added on or tripped over and then picked myself back up. And for me, I mean, I'm a blue collar kid from Las Vegas. You know, my dad would have me go in the pickup truck to the gas station and mount and dismount our race tires because it would save us five bucks a tire when we got to the track that the track didn't charge us five bucks to, to mount and dismount. We just bought the tire then. So I saved us. Every wheel I dismounted was a $5 save. Those beginnings of being a, a blue collar kid and not having an endless budget or a, you know, a way to really pay for the racing other than my dad's self-employed tool business. My dad was a Mac tool salesman. And, you know, a quick story was I didn't, I didn't race the race car until I was basically 16 years old. Mom thought it was too dangerous. And when I got to race, I finished fifth in my first ever race. My dad bought me a chassis and he says, hey, if you build it, you can race it. And I finished fifth in my first ever race alongside with my dad. My dad won that day. Second race out, I win. I beat my dad, who was a national champion in the dwarf cars, you know, a legend car that, that basically you could build your own engine and build your own chassis for it. And then I wrecked my third, fourth, and fifth race back to back to back. Like my head got big. It got Kyle Bush. <laughs> it couldn't fit through the garage door because I had won that race. And then when I wrecked those races, mom's about ready to pull the plug. And my dad taught me a story. He goes, hey, we're running low on funds. You know, we've been busting our butt every week, Monday through Friday, to rebuild your car and to get back to the track. How about this? How about you go out there and finish seventh tonight? I went, what? Why, why we got to go out there and, and run seventh? We're, we're here to win, Dad. You win all your races. You, you taught me these last 16 years that I can, that I can comprehend that I've been going to the track. You, Dad, you go to the track to win. You don't make friends. You're not there for social hour. You're there to race. And he goes, just finish seventh for me. It pays $35. I went, what? He goes, yeah, your car is $20 for registration and your pit pass is 15. We need to break even tonight. I went and raced that race with this new mentality and I finished eighth that night. And I go, dad, did, did we lose money? Are we in the hole? You know, are we five, 10 bucks down? He goes, yeah, something like that, but good finish. Mm. That mentality is how I was raised to race race cars and to learn to protect them to learn to race them and, and know about them and to work on them. And I brought that with me through my late models. I brought that with me into the truck series when Jack Roush and his team said, hey, come race our truck. And then when I got to Cup, I did the same thing with Jimmy Fenning. Here's a quick side story to this. 
when I was running a legend car in 1999, that was my last race in a legend car. We sold it just so that we could afford an IMCA late model or an IMCA modified. Sorry. So we had to sell one car to buy another. And so now it's that September of 99. And what was I doing in September of 2000? I'm starting 10th at Dover in a NASCAR Cup Series Winston Cup race with Dale Jarrett to my left, Bobby Labonte right in front of me, Jeff Gordon right behind me. I'm running legend cars in one September with a modified that we could barely afford. And then I'm running a cup race. That's how fast I came from blue collar kid, nobody with that. I'll admit a Bush ego. And I did it my way to get there. Like everybody said, you're not ready. You know, this isn't good for you. You're going to get steamrolled. You're not going to make it. And my rookie class in cup, I had Kevin Harvick, myself. Then you hear about this guy named Ron Hornaday Jr., who's the master of the truck series and a Hall of Famer, but couldn't quite make it in cup. Well, it's just the timing, age, you know, opportunity, and, and, and how we drove, right? And then there's these two other guys, Casey Atwood. Ray Evernham dubbed him before Casey Kane. And then Andy Houston was a rookie. Mm. We don't hear of his name anymore, but his dad, Mr. Houston, won tons of races in the Bush Grand National Series. And Andy, I think, is a spotter right now at, at this time up on the spotter stand. My point to all this is, is I came from nothing really fast, thrown into cup. I then started winning in 2002 with Jimmy Fenning. And again, my ego started getting big. And then I just started calling out people, you know, like Jimmy Spencer <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the this or that moment. And so I just went through a lot in a short amount of time without like the proper coaching. I don't know. I mean, my dad, when I got to the truck series, he's like, I got nothing for you, man. I don't know how to set these things up. Uh, I don't know how you're supposed to talk to reporters. Uh, just just do what you're doing. And, and I just rolled with it, I guess. I mean, was it right? Was it wrong? Was it was it different? All of the above. And when I won the championship at such a young age, doing it my way, that's when it got worse. Yeah. I, I just had the gun blazing, right? That's a great perspective because I'd never, I'd never heard your career categorized in, to, in such a way that really puts, you know, really brings the focus how quickly you came into the sport, how quickly you became a champion, how quickly all that success was coming at you. And then the worst part, though, was like, I thought it was me. I didn't have the four letters called T-E-A-M, team. I thought it was all me making these differences. And that's why I was in the underground talking to Roger Penske to switch out of Roush uh, just, just due to the way that they were treating my contract, yeah. right? And when I got to Penske, it, it was a wow. It, it was just a, it was a process over there. And it finally wore itself thin. And then, so then that, that departure is what your question was about. I had to framework your question. And when I was in between Penske and talking to other teams, right? I I'm talking to Ty Norris now about Michael Walter bracing. And he goes, Kurt, we can't touch you, man. You know, I was talking to 
uh, Andy Merstein and Richard Petty at, Rich, at our RPM about going to drive for them. Uh, talked to Furniture Row, but Barney was kind of like, eh. And I said, you know what? If everybody's saying no, I know somebody that won't say no because I'll go race for free. And Richard Childress told me, and he's like, he's like, no, but Richard Childress said, stay in the sport. Don't not show up. You got to be there every weekend, no matter what car you're in, just be there. And that's, you know, I don't want to get into any sticky stuff, but Richard Petty Motorsports wanted me to come race for them. And I, and I said, no, no, I'm going to go race for James Finch. I, I want to put myself on a path of a, a C-level team back to a B-level team and go to an A-level team. And that's what I've done in this decade. The second half of my career was to build it back up to build teams with my experience, to give back in a way that my dad was giving to me or my Southwest Tour car owner was giving to me. And, and I just, I humbled myself through that process. And I had a goal. It was crazy. I had a goal that I was going to end up at Stuart Haas. And I was thinking of that in 2011, December of 2011. And I didn't get to, to Stuart Haas until, uh, you know, 2014. Do you have any regrets? I mean, like you go back, I mean, you just went through basically 10, 12 years just then uh, from Roush getting into the sport to leaving Penske. That's, you know, you spent six or seven seasons at each of those teams, Roush. All right. So like go back. Cause you know, Dale's point was you seem to change, but that's coming from an outsider's perspective like myself or him, but that's, assuming you agree with that but it sounds to me like you just gave us the the groundwork to why that, that we were right that our that our perceptions of you might have been correct that you were maybe uh you know hit success i mean 2002 was your breakout year you had only been in the sport a year or two right uh you know just you, you had four wins in 2002 2003 if i'm you know that seems to have been the year where you started running into confrontations with people you, you talked about your spencer thing you talked you know you had that just and then 2004 you're a champion i mean boom 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 things are just happening so fast for you but then you talk about all the way to pinsky that's 12 years of a learning curve so what do you regret like what, what would you wish you did over again what, what, what handled differently back then i mean when you're young you're dumb and you're just full of you know like you that's it's just being the, the youth it is just the problem and for me not having a, I don't know just a, a stronger mentor or the ability to listen mm. I mean I think that that's yeah. that's probably my biggest regret was being aware of my surroundings and listening more mm. and, and and not taking uh, criticism so harshly um, because I think the number one thing about me is what got me to where I, where I am at that point, and it is today, but I do it in a different way, is, is that I'm a perfectionist. That I had to have it this way. It's got to be clean. It's got to look good. And, and I just wanted that, that aura. And then when things started to break away from that imagery that I had as, as perfection, I'd get frustrated. And I didn't like those flaws out there. And then that weakness showed through, uh, the media ran with it. Then I tried to fight it. And then 
it, it just one layer just compounded to the next. I mean, it just was there any time? Um, was there at any point during the sort of I guess the rebuild uh, that you questioned the possibility of getting back to that A class team? That you thought, man, is this going to happen or not? Or maybe this won't happen. Maybe this is my, maybe this is how it goes. You know, was there ever any time in, in the whole process where you felt like it wasn't going to work? Remember I was, I was talking about how it was me and that I didn't see the team around me. I didn't see the people. I didn't absorb the team atmosphere. And when I was with uh, James Finch, you know, we're having fun. We're drinking beer at the shop at 9 o'clock at night. We're loading up the car and we're headed to the next race. That that got me back to my roots of the fun and, and that energy of just doing whatever it took to get to the track. And then uh, my phone rang and it was Todd Barrier, who was out with Furniture Row Racing in Denver. And he's like, Kurt, you got to come out here, man. You got to drive for us. I want you. There was never a moment where it wavered on if I was ever going to get back up. But it was attaching to the people that I needed at those moments. So whether it was, you know, 2012 and Finch's car, uh, you know, and then with Furniture Row, I, Barney's like, hey, I'll set you up in a, in a condo downtown, you know, close to our race shop. And I'm like, you know what? No, no, I'm just I'm going to sleep on Todd Barrier's couch. I'm going to go with him to the shop at 5 a.m. I'm going to go for runs in the afternoon at high altitude. And then I'm going to fly back to Charlotte, you know, from my back to my house in Charlotte. And it just, it, I started to morph into the people that knew that I have the, the ability to drive, but knew that I, that I needed more time to work on myself. Mm. And then I met my wife, Ashley, uh, in 2015 and, and her approach to life and her beautiful elegance about how she looks at things really started to to influence me i mean it's it's led to a lot of cool moments that were the same in racing that i had from before but i appreciated it that much more and that's that's again the age thing and, and just being aware and again just the the people that i've that i've been around and surrounded myself with in the latter part has been much better go ahead and expand on that a little bit because i've had a similar experience with amy haven't affected me personally and even how I do everything. Like before I met her, I'd never leave the track. I'd stay in the bus, play video games, didn't want to go nowhere, do nothing. And she's just really gotten me out of my shell. So has that been similar for you? Has, has she brought you, has she sort of brought this person out in you that you didn't even know was there or you didn't know was the potential that you had as a person? Yeah, I think it, it's being aware and more patient and loving around each of the situations, uh, whether it's something at the house, uh, as far as how we travel. Um, you know, my first story with Ashley was when we met and we're down in Florida and she has her horses at the barn. She's got her, her people that, that help train the horses and take care of them. There's a dually and a trailer and the equipment. I'm like, man, this, this horse, this polo world is just like a, having your own late model team you know you got a couple of volunteers you're in the muck you're out there you know mucking stalls and, and and right there in the mix with everything and then you go out there and perform out on the polo field and she's this sweet innocent little angel and she puts her helmet on 
and you should see how much her attitude changes and the fierce competitor in her comes out. And I'm like, Whoa, that is me. I'm you. You are like, you are me. Like this was incredible. Uh, and just the, to feel that energy was so powerful. And I think that's, that's helped me uh, break away from racing and do yet the, the same thing with teamwork and people around uh, your, your hobbies and such. And so, it's it's she's an amazing woman um you know is very uh patient how did y'all meet who you how did y'all get introduced uh her older sister uh runs an apparel was running a, an apparel company doing t-shirts hats keychains all kinds of stuff out of california and the family's from virginia and so her sister invited her to come to the martinsville race and i'm like yeah sure you know yeah i'll get you guys pit passes no problem and as soon as I saw her, it was just this like electricity and this, this feeling. And she just felt so at ease around her first NASCAR race. And I'm like, wow, most, most people are just like blown away and all just tripping out on all the, the sensory. So we, we come back, we barbecue at my house afterwards. And she goes, I can't believe how big this NASCAR thing is. And the cars go so fast and that track is so huge. And, Oh my gosh, this is incredible. And I'm like, oh wow, she, she doesn't know anything about NASCAR. Martinsville was fast and big and everything. And, but that's, that's that, that energy that she's just always emitting. And that's, that's really what's been my different grounding uh, these last five years. since I mean, I y'all, are, y'all are both similar in this. And Dale just alluded to it is that, you know, Amy really had an effect on him, which is to say, by the way, Kurt, that, I mean, we've all evolved in the last 15 years and, and, and that's the way it ought to be. Right. We're all young and dumb. I mean, like we all have those things that we, you know, look back on and say, man, what, what were we thinking? Right. Dale certainly had a, an outlook on life that was a 180 to where he is today. Right. And um, so th- that's her father. He's a smart guy, right? My father-in-law and, and he's a, a well-off businessman. One of the first things he ever asked me he goes, Kurt, how old are you? And I said, I'm 36, sir. He goes, oh, okay, good. You're old enough to date my daughter. <laughs> well, I'm like, what? What are you talking about? He goes, oh, you're past 35. You're done with all your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> See, we all, that makes sense to us. It would have yeah. never made sense to us pre-35, right? We'd have been like, what a jerk. Yeah. That, you know, like. I'm, I think my little brother turned 35 here recently. So, yeah, he should be getting close. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, he's still working on it. He's still working his way up. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Hey, what did you guys, well, you know, we're talking about our careers and everything here, but uh, what was y'all's, I'm asking for both of you, what was your experience racing the other? Dale Jr. and Kurt, right there. Um, you know, because I don't remember you guys having any real big run-ins. We just had one right in the very beginning. Um, oh, damn. Okay. What was that? Oh, damn. Kurt got in the back of me off turn two at Darlington, or at Rockingham, and I put, I hit the inside fence with, I just got loose, and I, corrected it down into the inside wall and then i came back out on the track and uh, tried to annoy the hell out of yeah you tormented him i remember this now i tried oh hell yeah i i was i I felt as big (laughs) as high as a puddle man i was so like oh no because at rockingham the closure rate on fresh tires and old tires like you catch people so quick not to defend myself but i dumped Terry Labonte about 25 laps. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't find my front bumper. Yeah. That, day. that was the only time that I can remember. Yeah. No, man, I, I, that was an idiot move on my part that day. I remember you were running for rookie of the year 
against Matt Kenseth. And the next week at Miami, your old man sweated my what ass do do? for for a hundred oh, laps. I've heard this. What happened? I'm driving the John Deere car. You know, I, I qualified like 18th senior qualified. You know, he was always 20th or whatever. He didn't care about Fridays. Did yeah, he? he didn't qualify very well, but he didn't mind. <laughs> so he's rip roaring up, and he, his car has like top five pace, and yet he stayed on my bumper, sweating me. And I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? They're like, just pull over and stop. And I literally like front straightaway, just pull over to get out of senior's way and get back in behind him. And then he stops on the back straightaway, literally. Like, and it gets back in behind me and just jacks me up all day long. Like, I was so spun I've never out. heard that. Oh, he was so mad that, that I got into you at Rockingham. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it was it was bad, man. Yeah, when I was it was when I was great. When lesson. I was following you at Rockingham, my my crew chief Tony Senior. See, I, Tony Senior's really fiery, and I thought that he would be like, "Yeah, go out there and give him hell." But as soon as I started running behind you, Tony Senior's like, "Stop it, damn it!" He was getting so mad at me, and I was like, "Wait, he he wrecked us, Tony. Don't you want me to go out there and give him a hard time?" And he's like, "Quit it, damn it! NASCAR's telling me to tell you to quit it, quit it." Stop and it. then not, not only that, yep. but you made it worse because you kept acting like you couldn't hear it. There was bad radio transmission. Yeah, so I told Tony, I said, I can't hear your radio, Tony. And he was getting so mad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. He was no, we always, race, we always race good with each other. I, I think it's lessons like that early on when, when you have something, you get it out of yeah. the way early. I mean, we drafted well at super speedway yeah. races. That was always my favorite. I always thought you. that you were a really good plate racer. You know, you, um, I just don't know how to finish. Well, you always finish, you know, always you you tend to have a great average uh, of finishing in the top five. Like people always, you know, people will say, you know, plate racing is a lot of luck, but if you look at the people that are usually in the top 10 or top five in these races, it's the same guys. You, Denny Hamlin, McMurray was the same way. He would always be running well at the plate races. Is yeah, right now. it's like a mentality and an approach to how you play the game. And I always thought you're a really good plate racer. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I finished third my first ever time at Talladega, and I'm just like holding the wheel, like I ain't doing anything, man. I ain't doing anything. Get out of line. And and then you learn some of those small things that just help you stay out of trouble. Yeah. Well, you know? it all manifests in 2014 because when I think about you at plate racing, you've done a lot of successful. You had a lot of success at plate races, but then 2014. You win that Daytona 500. Oh, it was okay. I just love that the Tony Gibson moment. You're right. 2014 is your first win back at Martinsville, which I thought was one of your most like really iconic moments when you were so happy in victory lane. That's what that was. Then 2017, the Daytona 500. And Tony Gibson, who we love. I mean, not, how do you not love the old man, right? And he's up there losing it. And I felt like that his celebration was sort of channeling the entire team's emotion in that moment, right? Because it finally you did get over the hump. You did get that win, the big one. That, that one was huge, and it was for Tony Gibson. He had been going there for so many years, grew up in Daytona Beach. You know, his, his mom, I think, ran the ticket yeah. window for years. And, you know, it, there, there was this moment we had after the qualifying race. I remember it, and he's like, man, our car's not that good. I'm like, no, nah, man, it, it doesn't have that vibe. I go, can you work on it? Can you do some? Throw everything you've got at it. 
You know, I've never asked like a crew chief to go above and beyond what they normally, cause they're always given a hundred percent. He, he poured everything into that car. And on the last run, he's on the radio. He says, Hey, you're two laps shy on fuel. Do what you can. And I just rode, I just rode there just trying to save fuel, just trying to save fuel. And that race turned into a, a fuel mileage race. And it worked out perfect at the end where I was able to like finally put a plan together to drag the brake through three and four, coming to take the white, had a run on Larson and I'm, I'm doing the days of thunder, fake high, fake low, go high. And as I'm making those moves, he's like sputtering on fumes. And I'm like, Oh man, don't be taking my thunder away. I had a plan, bro. <laughs> but then to win that race for our team, man, and, and Tony Gibson went bonkers. bonkers. I mean, it's just, it was that whole vibe. It was that whole vibe of everything of what we went through those few days leading into that race. And he's a, uh, he used that moment like, like I, I've I've done it mm. all, because after that it just it was a different feel with Tony Gibson and uh, moved into more of a manager role at Stuart Haas afterwards. I think my favorite Kurt Busch moment in NASCAR is after winning at Kentucky against your brother. Um, y'all had y'all had quite an amazing final few laps, but the best part about it was your post race energy on the front straightaway. I'd never seen you be more genuine in what you were feeling and, and what was happening inside your heart and your head. You had to have taken a lot of pride in beating your brother. He's considered one of the best on the racetrack. I know that you feel like you're one of the best as well, but you, you sort of, you're bringing along this team, the uh, at Ganassi's and you're a big reason why the, uh, the program's improved and, and found more success and speed. You did the same exact thing at Furniture Row. And so you've groomed this program and you take them out there and you, you, you beat one of the best, you know, one-on-one pretty much in the final few laps of that race. Was that a moment where you kind of look back on your, your, your career and say, man, all that hard work and all that grind and all that effort uh, to get back on top, it was finally worth it. Was that, was that a big release for you? I know we talked about the Daytona 500. We talked about racing at Stuart Haas and getting back. But that win this past year was pretty incredible and most impressive to me. This one's heavy, Dale. Uh, you're, you're spot on, man. Beating my little brother is, is special because he is one of the best in, that our sport has ever seen. And I, I stuck my neck out, though, a couple years prior to that and told Monster, who has been with me the whole second half of my career, they're the ones that have helped me find more depth and more passion and more drive because I love representing their brand. It's who I am every day with just waking up and not having to think about it. They're, they're a great company. And I feel like family with them. And I told them, I said, hey, things are getting sticky here at Stuart Haas. You know, uh, I, I had a vision then of the the management. There's this guy, uh, Joe Custer, is going to put his kid in this 41 car. I, I like I like what I see over here at Canassi. And they're like, whoa, they haven't won in a while. What, what do you mean? What do you see over there? I said, just trust me. Roll with me. Mm. I stuck my neck out with a corporate sponsorship and, and a big move in my career and in the twilight of my career at at 40 years old, I said, roll with me guys, believe in me. And 
Ganassi and the people there and how the energy just changed. I mean, I walked in the front door and I said, it's not if we win, it's when we win, we're going to have a party. We're going to throw down like we're supposed to, and we're going to build on top of that and try to go win more. That win meant so many, it meant so many things for me. Even just a, a small moment in that day was my wife, Ashley, say, uh, can I fly up and be there for the race? I'm going to jump on so-and-so's plane. I'm like, yeah, babe, of course. She wasn't even there uh, race weekend leading into that. So yes, beating my little brother and, oh, I'm finally done telling the Darlington Ricky Craven story <laughs> of losing that two thousandths of a second. Oh, I now have one of the coolest finishes where I win. Oh my God. It's so, so refreshing telling that story this way. Oh. That's funny. It's so good, though, Kurt. That was so good, that, that Ricky Craven story. It was, but it, it was time. It's time to it show was. that one. And now we got the monster car in one of the most iconic finishes in, in, in our sport. Those are big things for me. Yeah. Those are things that it's because I, I just feel like, again, I'm that blue-collar kid that's a company man, and I love monster energy. And Chip Ganassi is letting me be me as a 40 year old right now. And that's, that's where all of this is just like a perfect fit. Well, man, we really appreciate your time today. Um, it's been a great conversation. Hope to get you back on the show and we get back in the studio. Uh, a lot of fun, a lot of fun, fun things to talk about around the table, but this has been great here on this zoom call. Appreciate your time. I know you got a busy week. Uh, so, so we're thankful to have you. All good, my friend. Thank you for having me on. Great to tell some stories and yeah, we'll do it in studio again. One time we'll have a couple of years. All right, man. You're great. Um, good luck going forward. Thanks, man. Kurt Bush. Hi, Mike. Let's talk about Darlington. We were uh, we were lucky to have some racing on the television on Sunday, and I'm sure you watched it. I mean, uh, I don't even know what the number is, but I imagine it's a pretty good number as far as network viewership. Yeah. Uh, what'd you think about the the race? Oh, man. All right. So I had a lot of expectations. First of all, you watched it, I'm, I'm assuming, right? You and I haven't had a conversation about it. So you, you watched it. Well, you know, I, I thought the race was interesting, but I had, you know, big expectations for it. And I really, really wished it would not have been a runaway finish. I, that was the one thing that bummed me out. I was, I was praying for a caution. I, I thought the race with Bowman and Harvick there with about 20 to go, off of a restart, I think it was, uh, was, was exciting. I wanted that, but I didn't want it just for me. I wanted it because in case there were new fans watching, I wanted them to see this exciting finish, and I hoped that there might have even been contact and whatnot, but I didn't want to see a two-second victory, regardless of who the victor was. So that, that was the one thing that sort of, I don't know, I, w I was just wishing for the home run, the grand slam on the finish. Didn't really get it, though. But that was my first thing. I mean, what, what did you think about that? Well, I mean, that particular part of the race. I, I You know, the race played out, and uh, I didn't find myself having those feelings at the end of the race. We had seen a couple times before on a few restarts leading up to the end where Bowman was super quick on short run, and then, you know, Harvick would, would do what he does and drive away how he did at the finish. So – I thought if we had a caution, we were just going to get more of the same. You know, probably not – probably wouldn't have changed the outcome, to be honest with you. It was uh, really weird seeing the empty grandstands. Yeah. Knew that was going to be weird. It was weird. And um, it doesn't 
mean that, you know, I don't mean that in any way positive or negative. It was just weird. Something we'll never forget. I mean, just like drivers taking pictures uh, in victory lane with masks on. That's, that's weird and not bad, not good. Just where we are. You know, I think that if I was to win the race at Darlington, I would have taken a picture with the mask on. You know, you'll never forget this sort of time that we're in and what you're, what you're doing, and especially any kind of remarkable achievements and successes that you have as you start to, you know, kind of crank back up. So uh, I definitely would have took a photo with the mask on next to the trophy head. I won the race. It looked like that everybody was playing by the rules in terms of social distancing and taking it seriously. No one made it uh, out to be a joke or something that they didn't take very seriously. Everybody was there to do it right and try to keep this thing rolling because if we do it right, we can keep going. We can keep racing. We get to go back Wednesday and then the next weekend and keep going forward with the plan that we have. If we don't do this right, if somebody doesn't take this seriously, if somebody does make a misstep, it could derail the whole effort and change the entire plan, slow down our progress to get back to good. Happy to see the plan be put put together and put to, and put forward, and it worked, and everybody did their part. As far as the race, um, I got a few notes. I sat on the couch and was watching that race, and we were going to do a little post-race deal for uh, NBC and NASCAR America at home. and um, So I took a little bit of notes as to what I was watching. Um, Ricky Stenhouse on lap one turn two or whatever, not, you know, didn't even complete a lap. That was hard to watch, man. Yes, it was. You know, you've been sitting on the sideline for a long time. Listen, I'm not preaching to Ricky right here. He knows what he did. Um, and I watched his, you know, his, his social media work after, uh, you know, a lot of drivers been doing a lot of social media themselves. Yeah. Doing videos and whatnot. Been great to see. I love it. Yep. Reminds me of a driver who used to do a lot of periscopes. Yeah, reminds me. I, I remember one. <laughs> um, so, Ricky, you know, it's just frustrating because I like Ricky. As a friend, he's cool as hell. Great guy to hang out with. It, so, it's hard to critique him. It's hard to critique him or Jimmy or anybody when they, when they don't get it right. But, dang, man, you've been sitting on the sideline for all this time. You've had a lot of time to think about how to prepare for – how to approach this race. You sort of got dealt, you know, the qualifying in your position is out of your control. Uh, where you start is out of your control. That should, you know, in my mind, that should take a little pressure off, you know. take take. You don't have to go out there and, and put it down and make it happen. They were giving you your starting position. Hey, that's the way it's going to be. You know, you're going into the first turn of the race without any idea of how your car drives or how it's going to grip the track and what the other guys around you are going to do, whether they're going to go hard or too easy, very easy. Some of these guys could have been super, super easy. You just don't know. So wouldn't you think you would try to give a lot of room, be prepared for something that you're not prepared for? Mm. You know, here he is on the bottom of the racetrack, way down on the apron, three or four wide and, uh, Turn himself around. That was just so frustrating to see early in the race. And uh, he'll get a shot Wednesday to do it differently. And I'm sure he is eager, as anyone, any driver who makes mistakes like that, they're eager to rebound or go back out on the track and do something right, you know, do something good to sort of redeem themselves. So he'll be lucky to not have to wait a whole week to do that. 
Yeah, but on that point real quick, Dale, I mean, you know, you bring up a good point. It's hard to critique him for me personally and for two reasons. One is because of what you just said. I mean, there was no practice and all that stuff, and I want to ask you a question about that in a second. Sure. The other thing is on this show last week, I was basically saying I want these drivers to bring it. Don't even sit there and hold back. I want you to bring it. we got all these people that will probably be watching us, and, they, you know, the, and, and, and it's going to be this opportunity – to not be selfish, but to think about bigger things and about, you know, the, the broader landscape. I didn't think that <laughs> – I didn't know that, he, that was Ricky. Not that Ricky was responding to me, but I'm saying is, was Ricky just going balls to the wall? Or, I, I felt like that, you know, a little bit of patience considering it was lap one and you had not had practice would have been the way to bring it later in the race, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I think that's what we would have wanted. I felt awful for him much in the way I felt awful for Jimmy, which I, don't, I still don't know what happened to him. And, and Pretty much that was the same just, thing. Just, just, just a brain fart, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, Jimmy's driving the car and he knows what went on, but, you know, he's, he's way down on the apron in turn two, which, which is a line that he'd been using to exit that corner. So he had a good amount of track between him and the wall to be able to come up off the corner and be on the inside of the 17. And he, I don't think the 17 came down. Jimmy made a move up off the apron and got, just got into the 17. He hit him. That's what he did. He ran into the car, 17 tank slapped, which hit Jimmy and sent him down the racetrack. Just trying to do too much, you know. And he's basically just – uh, not far to go before he's going to finish that stage. Yeah. Oh. It, you know, it, it, huh. I, I have a hard time with it because Jimmy's had a lot of mistakes here lately. You know, when you look at the last couple of years, I think that he would even agree that he's made a lot of mental mistakes trying to make up for the speed of the car, the lack of the speed in the car. More, more probably in the last two or three years than he's made in his entire career. And now, you know, We've seen when we, you know, I know Jimmy, you don't have to tell me, Jimmy's a seven-time champion. I know that. He's won a lot of races. He's one of the best to ever do it. I know that. I've said that. I mean, I know the guy isn't perfect, right? But in the last couple of years, he's made a, a lot of mistakes um, trying to create something out of nothing when the Chevrolet didn't have any speed, when Hendrick Motorsports maybe didn't have uh, the speed that they're accustomed to having. Well, now here they are with a great race car, apparently a very fast Chevrolet, and the organization has made a lot of gains. They're all three or all four right there in the top five at one point. Yeah, early on. You know, is Jimmy going to recognize that he might can dial it back a little bit? Because he seems to be on the ledge, right? He seems to be pushing this to the max right up against the chip. Maybe he can start to see, understand the, the, the performances there. He doesn't have to try to save the day. Just, you know, live to fight another lap and, and be there at the end to put himself in that position to have a shot at a win. He can win a race. They got the speed in the car. They got the speed in, in, in the organization. They can win a race, make the playoffs, be a contender in the playoffs. They got that potential. And um, I'm, I'll probably get grilled because I made a ton of mistakes in my career. But this oh, is yeah, but you're not saying you were perfect. I mean, listen, we, we, there, there's correlation. Like, I can think back to times when we were going through the funk, 
Yeah. And, and you were trying to go do things. I mean, like, l- listen, you can only say that because you've experienced it yourself. And I, so anybody wants to take a shot at you about this. Yeah. Say, I mean, you're this trying to my, say you're like, you're, it's my job now. So, um, <laughs> oh, this is what you do. <laughs> you no, this is my, yeah. This is my job to be critical and, and, and right. give uh, affirmation and all those things, whatever, <laughs> never necessary. But, but here's, here's what I, here's my question. This is what I've wanted to ask you about. And that is, the lack of practice, okay? Because I will tell you, I've never brought it up on this show because I know that you're a driver. You're going to always, you're going to want your practice. I got it. I know this. But I watched the race and I could see some vulnerabilities. Yeah. Hey, there's nothing wrong from a viewer standpoint for me to see vulnerability. I want to know how hard it is to drive these cars. And to be honest with you, when you've had, you know, six hours of practice or whatnot and stuff like that. you you get a chance to iron out the kinks. I don't, I gotta be honest. You can make an argument that the lack of practice and the fact they went out there without having taken laps made for a better event for a spectator standpoint. I can make the argument. So my question to you is where are you on this? We, we, you're a driver, you're for, you know, you, you drove, you, you're going to want your practice, but was the event objectively better without it? It's hard to say because we have been, we're so hungry for something. And, uh, you know, looking at Jeff Gluck's, was it a good race poll? It's uh, highly favorable that it was a good race. All right. Give me that same race a year ago before pandemic, before we were, before everything was taken away from us, before sports was taken away from us. And does that race get an 85% success rate on on Jeff Gluck's poll? I doubt it. Probably 60, maybe 50. So I'm not going to say this was just a great great race and it was was even better because of no practice. It was just a race. You know, to be honest with you, in my household, I had two very drastic different opinions on whether they were enjoying the race or not. So maybe not everybody saw it the same way. To your point, though, I don't think we need a lot of practice. And and as a driver, as a driver, I did not feel like I always wanted to be practicing, especially when my car is good. Practice when I'm fast is giving everybody a chance to get closer to me. Now, when I was not good, I wanted more practice. I I needed more practice to be able to fix whatever the problem was on our car to get more speed. But is it necessary? No, especially with simulators, manufacturer simulators. We, you know, I talked to, uh, you can hear it in a lot of drivers' comments post-race and so forth, but a lot of these guys only have the simulator to lean on in a time like this. And Tyler Reddick talked about it in the post-race comments of how he went to the simulator and used the simulator a lot to prepare for this race at Darlington. Okay, take away practice. That puts more focus on a simulator. That will drive the, the value in the simulator and, and improve, um, make teams or organizations, manufacturers even, try to improve their simulators as they are. I'm, I know they're trying to make them better and better every day, but when it becomes maybe the most important tool to understanding what kind of car you're going to put on the racetrack for race day. I guess the perception toward the simulators and their value is really changing, especially in a time like now when that is the only way they can kind of 
tryouts setups or see where they are or how, how the car feels or drives to the driver. That's the only way they can really get any track time is simu is, is, is virtually. So I love that because I'm a big tech guy and I love simulators and I love all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like that, that part about it. And there's gotta be a monetary, you know, savings for teams, organizations, ho- you know, think about logistics, hotel rooms, rental cars, and right. um, track time, tires, gas, uh, you know, you can find um, numerous things that they saved money on by showing up and racing on, on Sunday without any practice. They could shorten the race weekends up easily. They could do it right now. Every single week could, could, you could show up on Saturday and, qual- and practice for a couple hours and qualify and then race the next day. No one would care. The only people that don't want that, I believe, are the tracks. Thank you. That's what I was about to say. So if you're a fan and you're going to come camp or you're going to come stay, for the weekend, the track wants you to be there as long as they can get you there, right? So if there's on-track activity Friday uh, and you're going to take that away from the track, that's probably a big loss in income or that's a lot of revenue that may, that's disappearing off the table for them and what fans are doing and enjoying on that particular day around the racetrack. Now, you know, racetracks could get creative and, and bring in other series that would compete on those days or concerts, uh, different type of attractions to the event to where it's more than just a race on Sunday, you know, and I've felt like I've, I've said that for years and tracks do a good job. There's the tracks, but there's also then the TV element. The TV people care about practice too, because those are live events. And when you buy live events, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think we should be putting every practice on TV. Okay. In but the, they still do. They do, but they sh- maybe we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't. You know, maybe there's a maybe there's a more economical way to put those to allow people to consume practice through streaming um, online, whatever it is. Whereas we're not putting it, I don't know. You know, I, I, in the '90s and and even in the 2000s, I, we didn't have every single minute of track time broadcast on national television. So right. I don't know if that's ne- necessary at all, but um, and I don't think that the networks would really miss that. I mean looking at the numbers of people that are tuning in to a Friday morning or eight or eight o'clock Saturday practice, um, you know, do, does it really matter when that is? Um, I don't know. I don't think that's, that's as big a domino for me. Well, okay. That being said, if I, I don't want to go down to that, I mean, there's a couple ways you can, you know, slice that apple. The thing about it is, is I was curious on if it was going to be obvious for us watching this thing to see people to watch this race and it be clear that they had zero laps on the thing and it wasn't it looked like a race to me it looked like another race of a bunch of professional race car drivers that know how to for the most part most of them you know let let themselves you know tiptoe into the thing and not go you know full bore not all of them didn't do that but 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 most of them and they ended up having a race that looked similar to when you had six different practices or whatever. And I think that that, I think that's a, a point to be made. It's a reason to, to, to credit the drivers for their ability, credit the teams for being creative and being able to, you know, bring a car that is, you know, dialed in enough to be able to keep it in one piece until you can make adjustments. And it added a layer of, strategy and complexities to the race that and vulnerabilities to the race that I enjoyed. I enjoyed it. I liked it. Good deal. Make an argument. Hey, reduce the practices altogether. 
Anyways, I thought your opinion on that would be interesting. Yep. Ryan Newman had a great day. Good to see Ryan Newman out on the track, but also very competitive in his race. He struggled with track position late after a little bit of a spin, but uh, still had good speed in his car. Tyler Reddick, what a great day he had. Yeah. Um, quick all day for, uh, for RCR, getting a lot of speed out of that Chevrolet. Tyler Reddick, I think, is one guy who's – and his teammate, Austin Dillon. Tyler and Austin, um, but Tyler most specifically, is a guy who's, who's really benefiting from the new Chevrolet. I don't think that they would be having as much success as had Chevy not brought the new car in. Uh, Matt Kenseth, you mentioned great day for Matt. He seemed to adapt really quickly to the balance of the car and how to drive this package. Uh, look to see him continue that success going forward. John Hunter Nemechek finished in the top 10 with a team that rarely does. It's been three years since they've had a top 10 on a non-plate racetrack. What an incredible uh, hustle, you know, from a guy who uh, – you know, I don't it's, – it's funny because it's like Reddick, Reddick and John Hunter both get in those cars and they really don't – when I look at Reddick's car or John Hunter's car, I have a perception or a – I have an idea, I guess, of where I th- assume that car is going to finish. It's a bias. Yeah, bias. John Hunter and uh, Reddick do not share that. They they just jump in there and and they have no they see no reason why they can't excel and succeed and they don't use that perception as an excuse in poor performance. That to me is incredible. That shows me that those two guys got amazing determination and fire uh, that will propel them deep into you know very successful careers in this sport given, you know, given the right opportunities. That is a personality trait, Mike, that you don't acquire. You don't, you don't, you don't grow into. That's like a quality in a race car driver that is, you know, kind of part of your DNA. And it's one, it's a rare quality that is super, super critical. You know, maybe I'm overstating it, but I feel pretty good about it. What I'm saying Rodney Childers, I think, um, you know, great win by Kevin Harvick. He drove the car, but Rodney Childers had to set it up. Rodney Childers had to guess on what they needed when they got there, and he didn't get to go out and practice and lean on the driver to help him get in that, go in the right direction. Rodney had to put the car underneath Kevin, and, and I don't know whether it was really there at the beginning of the race, but they adjusted and improved and, and, and made the car more competitive, it seemed, as the race went on. You got to give in this particular instance with no practice, no qualifying, no track time. You got to give the crew chief Rodney Childers a big hand for his leadership. It was a huge factor in their result um, when you could have, you know, when you put a car out on the track with no laps. I wouldn't say there's guesswork, but you are kind of, you know, biting the bullet. So uh, it's a tough spot for a crew chief, and he excelled. Hey guys, this is our YouTube Ask Junior portion of the podcast presented to you by Xfinity, our podcast partner here and also your partner in speed, coverage, and control. Glad you guys are here. Leah's here to help get the questions going. Mike's here as well to pitch in the conversation. So let's get started, Leah. All right. First question, we're going to go with the one that we got asked the most this week. Everyone wants to know, um, what your plan is for an Xfinity race with the you know extended revised schedule coming out? What are you doing? We're still going to go run Homestead. I'm going to run the Saturday.
Saturday race. There's two races, um, Xfinity races at Homestead, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. I'm going to run the Saturday one. Why am I not running both? We have agreements in place for drivers to run all the other races. I'm, I'm filling in. I'm going to run one race, and all the other races are spoken for. So we will probably um, use the same car as long as I don't tear it up. Uh, but we will be ready if we need a backup, uh, I suppose. But um, should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be uh, middle of the afternoon at Homestead in July or June or whatever, so it's going to be hot. Not sure I'm looking forward to that part, but I know that I enjoy a hot, slick racetrack and, and putting that car right on the wall. So that's probably where we're going to be spending most of the day trying to find some speed. So uh, we'll make it work. We'll sweat and lose a lot of pounds and have some fun. All right, next question from Higgy, talking about that, actually. Um, that He said that the drivers didn't look absolutely wiped out after yesterday's race, but will fatigue play a factor on Wednesday or even on Sunday 600 miles with these shorter breaks in between races? You know, I think it might creep into your head a little bit, especially at Charlotte. Probably not so much for Darlington, but, you know, when your car's not fast, you get to thinking about those things and, and allow your mind to sort of wander off of the, uh, the focus at hand. You know, that's a long race. Charlotte is, it's not so much tough physically as it is mentally. You know, your concentration level, trying to stay at peak concentration level for four hours when, when really you're stressing yourself to do it for three hours, which is the typical length of most of our races. Well, when you run that 600 miler, you got to go a little bit further, a little bit longer. Your body and your mind really not conditioned for that. You've had a lot of time off. Now you're going to try to cram a lot of racing into a very short period of time. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some of those guys get out of the car and just be mentally worn down. Maybe not physically, uh, you know, visually, but I think by the, you know, they're going to go home and just kind of check out. Sloppy Chad wrote in on Twitter, and he wants to know, with Myrtle Beach announcing it'll be shutting down, do you plan on taking a late model down there and giving it one final ride around the place? No, I probably won't. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a racetrack that I spent a lot of time at in the mid-'90s. Uh, we raced there for about three or four years, and uh, there's, been a talk, there's been a lot of talk about, the, you know, the, the track and staying open and what it was going to become and all this stuff, and I think, you know, this – has kind of all led up to an inevitable future uh, for the track. And, and uh, you know, I wish it was going to stay open forever, but I feel that way about all these racetracks. And, and some of them are more successful at it than others. And apparently the land value is just too good to pass up as far as being able to turn it into whatever their plans are versus what they would be able to do in revenue for you know, keeping the track open. So I feel like the track's successful. It works. It does what it, you know, it does what they, it operates well, but the land value, I think in that particular space has always been sort of the driving force behind the rumors and conversations about what would happen to the track eventually. So, and this pandemic has probably not helped in, in keeping the track open beyond this year. Dominic Wild says, um, there's been speculation that street races could be joining the NASCAR schedule. So which city would you like to see a NASCAR street race in? Oh man, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think we'd probably be looking at existing racetracks that have had a lot of success and a place where, you know, we would be able to draw a nice crowd and, and showcase, you know, what we can do or what our cars can do. 
That's a tough one though, but you know, there's a lot of options. There's a lot of people going to throw a lot of things on the table, but I don't really have, I haven't put enough thought into it really to come down to, you know, what track I'd like to go to. Mike, do you have any kind of feedback on that? I was or? just thinking San Francisco because they get those heels. It would be a little Dukes of Hazard to it, but uh, you know, they got that, that street that does that zigzag. <laughs> I know oh, I can't God. take anything seriously, but no, for real though, I mean, I would, I would pick a city that we are completely not in that market. So uh, start with that aspect and try to at least just start integrating parts of the country that, uh, that maybe they, they would be more receptive to than others. People on YouTube, um, you know, Long Beach, St. Petersburg, um, Portland. Those are some Portland, of the things that are See, that would be cool, on. right? I mean, yeah, that. Yeah, I think Portland would be great. All right, next question. Um, Eric Smits, of all the cars you have raced, do you have a favorite or one that means the most to you? Oh, man. Well, there's uh, I won my first late model stock race at Myrtle Beach in 1994, I think. Maybe it was 93. But that car is over at DEI. We sort of restored it for the most part. And uh, it's sitting over at DEI. That car means a lot to me. I, I assume that the 2004 Daytona 500 winners over there too, which that's that's got to be a great car. Uh, Rick's got a you know the 2014 Daytona 500 winner. Rick has that over at his place, and that car will always be special to me. The last race that I ran at Homestead, we have that car. It's over at the Hall of Fame. The beer cans in the trunk. You know, I mean, I I don't know if one car is high above or uh you know more important than than most but there's a couple right there that i know are around that i know are still out there and i hope they'll always be i guess i don't have my hands on every single one of them so i can't take care of them but i hope that somebody's taking care of them. our next question coming from Corey, um watching live on youtube what advice uh would you give for someone new to car setups in iRacing man um <laughs> so uh, there's a uh, there's a website called Virtual Racing School, and it's a subscription website. But I've used it when it comes to um, you know if you're going to run any open setup official races, especially on the road courses for me, I have no time to be building setups or trying to find speed. I have zero times right, so I spend a lot of time in the fixed setup part of the service racing on the oval side. But if I want to go run a race in, in the road course side that's open. I subscribe to uh, virtual racing school and they have setups. They also have uh, video tutoring and so forth about how to drive the track, the line and the, the drivers, the people that are tutoring you are successful quality individuals in the service that are customers as well. So, um, and I found the setups to be for the most part, pretty competitive. I mean, you're going to have to adjust a few things for your style or what you like or don't like, but that they'll, I've used that service uh, to sort of help me enjoy the sim a lot more and be able to do a lot more things in the sim as opposed to a lot of guys get in the sim and they pick, they kind of huddle into one space and they only really enjoy about 10% of what's available. And so I would encourage people to try to French out more. And that's what I've tried to do over the last couple of months is really try everything, you know, and try to push myself to, drive cars maybe that I wouldn't typically think about trying. But that virtual racing school, I think they got a good service. 
Uh, there's a guy on here, Kevin. He says he got to race with you the other day and he was nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I was nervous too, Kevin. Not because Kevin, of you. you make him nervous. <laughs> everybody said, you know, when I get in those races, everybody's like, go Ragdale. And I'm like, I'm, you watch me, I'm going to wreck myself. Don't you worry. That's awesome. All right, that's it for today. All right, y'all. appreciate you guys tuning in to uh, Ask Junior today and, and following along on our Dirty Mo Media YouTube channel. We appreciate the support for the podcast. Driver, start your engines. That's all you have to say right into your Xfinity X1 voice remote to unlock all the latest NASCAR news, highlights, and TV shows. Pretty incredible, Mike. It is totally incredible. That's not all. If you open up the Xfinity Sports Zone anytime for the NASCAR schedule, driver standings for all three national series, you even can do a live in-race scoreboard with driver stats. It's all right there in the palm of your hand with the X1 voice remote. Xfinity is really bringing the best seat in the house for NASCAR fans. Check out everything at Xfinity.com slash NASCAR. Last call. All right, everybody, it's last call for the Dale Jr. Download. It's been a great show. Kurt was awesome. What a great conversation we had with him, Mike. Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, he he just did uh, he did a solid job. Opened up on a lot of things. I was a little uh, curious if he'd really get into, but he did. This past weekend, I know we all talked about the racing at Darlington, but racing uh, was happening all over the country, and particularly at Hickory Motor Speedway. Oh, yeah. Our, our own Josh Berry went to Hickory uh, with our late model program. We got a new partner on the hood of that car, iRacing. Yeah. And All Things Automotive has been with us for uh, several years now. But Josh went there for twin 51-lap races and won them both. I watched it on Speed 51. It was just great to see us competing again. My grandfather's won five championships, track championships at Hickory during the 1950s. Mm. It's incredible that we are still winning races with cars out on that racetrack 60 plus years later. We just want to remind all our listeners uh, and, and fans of the podcast that we really appreciate it when you guys support our partners, our sponsors, the people that support uh, this show through sponsorship, Xfinity. Mike, we've got a lot of great partners. But we appreciate when our listeners support those brands. Yeah, I mean, listen, you go through pandemics and things like this that you don't foresee, and then, and then all of a sudden, you, uh, you don't take for granted the people that stuck with you. And so we've had a lot of partners that come in and out of this podcast, uh, you know, on a weekly basis. And I, I just, you know, and also with uh, our other podcasts, uh, Door Bumper Clear, you know, OfferPad steps up and just sticks with us through a pandemic. I mean, that's a, that's a big deal to us. And so Xfinity, you mentioned, you mentioned, you know, we have Chevrolet. We got a bunch of partners and when you hear us and you get entertained by us uh, when we deliver uh, some ad reads and Dale gets into his Scotts Yards and, and everything else. But listen. It doesn't mean anything unless you're supporting them in return, right? And and that's just the, there's just no other way to cut it. And so continue to support them. If you hear them and this show means something to you, or if Door Bumper Clear means something to you, or another piece of Dirty Mo Media content means something to you, and you see a partner assigned with that, support them in return. That would be doing us a big favor. Also, you're going to hear a lot more and more over the next several weeks about Lost Speedways. All right, Lost Speedway premieres on Peacock July 15th. I cannot wait for people to see this show. It's created and produced by the same team that does this, this very own, the Dale Jr. Download. Our Dirty Mo Media team has been working really hard. We're spread thin yeah. putting together 
all of our content, but I mean, that's why we, Matthew's not even on right now is because Matthew's working on lost speedways. We're in the, in the home stretch right now. So Matthew hasn't been, uh, you know, he hasn't left the company. He is literally needing these two hours that we've been taping this podcast to finish up. We all have been just completely, completely consumed of giving this product because we believe in it. It is a show that has exceeded our expectations. Leah Vaughn went and binge watched every episode this past week because we gave her the link. She came back and was blown away by it. And to blow Leah Vaughn away, I mean, that is no easy <laughs> Hey, that's task. not easy to do. It's not easy to do. Yeah, Mike told me to watch two episodes and I literally just watched, went through all of them. It was awesome. I loved it. Can't wait to see the final product. Well, we are finished with filming yep. Lost Speedways. Matthew and, and the team are now sort of hovering and pouring through a lot of vintage material, photos, videos, home videos, some stuff that's never been seen before. Yes. Um, Matthew's literally discovering lost footage during this process that I cannot, I haven't even seen. I just can't wait. It's, it's really going to tie the stories together. It's going to be an incredible opportunity to uh, to bring to bring this show to to Peacock and and uh, I just can't wait. Really excited about it. It's bigger and better and and you know more than I could have ever dreamed when we first started talking about this concept. So right. Lost Speedways, we're going to be telling you about it. Yep. We're not going to let you miss it. July fifteenth. Got to get to Peacock. Peacock TV is the NBC's new streaming service. That's where you're going to find it. Yeah, they have a um, it, they have a free tier. There is also another, there's a, there is a pay tier, but if you have Xfinity, you get Peacock service for free. You get it already. So I'm a, I'm an Xfinity customer. And so I get the service as is and which, which is actually been convenient for pretty much every streaming service that I can think of has been able to, you know, I've been able to connect through my Xfinity. So uh, that's, that's one way to, uh, to enjoy Peacock, but we know you're going to tune in. Can't wait to bring it to you. All right, everybody, that's the show. Uh, appreciate everybody for tuning in. Mike, Leah, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. We are going to do a show next week. It's Memorial Day weekend. We're going to let everybody enjoy themselves, even on Monday. So we're going to record on Tuesday next week, Mike. Yep. Correct? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, so we'll record Tuesday. So the podcast will be just a slightly delayed on, on the release, but it's because we're going to wait a day so everybody can have fun with their families. But thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week. Check out Dirty Mo Media on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dirty Mo.